of the differences that we have with some other uh, denominational groups and how, you know, I've got great relationships um, with other pastors. We don't always see eye to eye on everything. And um, the more that we're around each other, the more that we realize and respect one another, but the more we realize that, you know what, all, none of us have a real corner on the truth. Um, and, and, and it's our lack of understanding in some areas that keep us divided and keep us from working together. So, so I, I've been thinking about this for some time, that these tensions, if you try to erase these tensions completely, or if you, if, if you ignore the, t the tensions, it'll drive you into the ditch theologically. You'll get off on one side or the other um, if you focus on one of these doctrines um, being greater than the other. You wind up steering yourself into a ditch to the left or the right. And um, instead of living between those tensions, um, trusting in both of them, even when we, when we don't fully understand them or, comp or comprehend them. Um, and and that's, the, that's the purpose of the series. We need to stay out of the ditches. And so some of the things that we've talked about thus far... Uh, is God a holy God or is God a loving God? Because if you get into the ditch about the nature and character of God, um, if, you, if you think that God is only holy, then you're going to get into a ditch of judgmentalism. You're going to be harsh, and God's going to be harsh and looking to punish people for their sin. Um, and by the same token, if you get off in the ditch of God is uh, more loving than he is holy... Um, then you'll get off into a ditch of liberalism and anything goes and, 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 and God loves you no matter what. And, and so there's a tension that exists between God's holiness and God's love. I believe God's holy. I also believe God's love. I don't believe he's more holy than he is loving and I don't believe he's more loving than he is holy. I believe he is equally both things even though it's hard for us uh, to wrap our mind around. And flowing out of that, we talked about God's law and God's grace. Both of those are true. God's law is not bad. Everything God does is good, and God gave us the law for a purpose. We're not saved by the keeping of the law, but the law is there to reveal the holy character of God and, 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 um, and his moral code for our lives. And, uh, and God's grace is equally as good. God gave us his grace to deliver us from the penalty of the law and, and, and from the power of sin in our, uh, in our life. And so... Um, the law and grace are not enemies with each other. They work hand in hand. The law can't save you. God's grace is what saves you. Um, but those are not, we can't diminish the law. We shouldn't diminish the law. Neither should we diminish the grace of God that saves us um, from that bondage. And then we talked about our faith and our works. And that's our response to God's character and to God's law and to God's holiness. Um, our faith and our works. Faith and works are not an enemy. Your works won't save you. But if you have real faith, it works. James and Paul um, looked like even they were at odds with each other in this. But when you understand what they were talking about, you, you know that, um, that faith is the root and works is the fruit. Um, and, and they work together. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. What you believe, you practice. What you believe, you flesh out in your life. And so um, the, the, the law and grace are not working against each other, nor are our faith and our works working against each other. Um, I, I almost wanted to skip today's because it is, a, um, it is probably the two doctrines that have created the most conflict within the body of Christ, um, even to the point of being, becoming almost a civil war between us. Um, and, and, and it pushes us over into two camps, and I'm not going to get real deep in this, but um, it pu it'll push us over into a camp, what we call Calvinism, and another camp which we call Arminianism, and there's different variations of each one of those. 
And, um, and I have great friends that are in what would be considered the opposite camp than I am. Um, but we have learned to respect and love one another and learn from one another and grow with each other. And so even though this is probably one of the deepest subjects we're going to talk about, don't worry about it because I'm not going to dive that deep in it. All right? I'm not going to go that deep into it. But what I want to talk about this morning is God's sovereignty and man's free will. Um, somebody asked me one time why we didn't, because on our church page in different places, I just put Zion Hill Church. And they're like, how come you didn't add free will in there? You're you ashamed of it? And I said, no. Um, I don't have to add everything that I believe in the title of the church. Number one, I still believe in man's free will, but I also believe in God's sovereignty. And I don't think those things are contradictory to one another. I think they're complementary to one another. Um, but, but, but this whole idea of God's sovereignty and man's free will, especially when it comes to play in the area of man's salvation, that's where, that's where the huge disconnect sometimes takes place. And, that, and that's where you, get, you, you come away with words like uh, God's elect and God's chosen and God's predestined people. And, and then that other side of that, that we really do get to choose whether or not we accept God's free gift of salvation. Uh, and, and so the line can be drawn pretty starkly between these two. And my purpose this morning is not to draw that line so stark. There's been... Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get bogged down in it. I'm not going to try to preach beyond what I understand because I don't understand it all. And nor am I going to tear down people that I differ with um, in this because they are my friends and my brothers and I love them. They have the Spirit of God in them and they believe that I have the Spirit of God in me. And so that makes us brothers even if we don't see eye to eye on every aspect of these two doctrines. And there's been too much mean-spiritedness about this. There's been too much judgmentalism. There's been too much hypercriticism. And there have been too many straw men arguments. I love for people to come to me and tell me what I believe. And then for me to respond, that's not what I believe at all. Um, because this is what we do to each other. We, we build up a straw man of what the other person's opinion is, and then we tear it down. And I've realized in my fellowship with these other men um, that their understanding of Scripture and their interpretation of Scripture is not so far-fetched. Um, that I can't see how they build their theology. So I want to begin today in a passage of Scripture that seems to weave together the two concepts. And I'm going to try to show them to you as I read. It may be a little bit difficult for you to see all of it. Um, but this passage of Scripture is, is, is one that I believe kind of weaves together God's sovereignty in men being saved and man's free will choice in whether or not they receive that offer of salvation. John chapter 6, and I, it's, I'm kind of picking it up in the middle of the story, um, but I'm, I just want to key in on some verses. If you'll begin reading with me in verse 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Verse 36, but I say unto you that you have also seen me and believe not. So there's some free will mixed in there. Jesus is saying, um, if you come to me, if you believe in me, then you're going to have um, that, that, that water, that bread that will make you never hungry or never thirsty. And then he said, but even now, some of you are seeing me and you're not believing in me. So there's a, there's a choice that's being implied in those verses. But then you get in verse seven, 37 and you see some sovereignty at work in this. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, 
but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So you see that 37 through 39 is kind of focusing in on God's sovereignty. And then verse 40 kind of mixes that whole business of sovereignty and man's choice uh, together. Keep reading with me, verse 41. I'm not going to pick apart every verse, but verse 41, the Jews murmured at him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Murmur not among yourselves. And then verse 44 goes back to his uh, sovereignty. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. There's God's sovereign election, God's sovereign uh, hand at work in that. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread uh, that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Any man um, that, that, that eats this bread, there's that choice. There's that free will opportunity. Any man that eats this bread um, has eternal life. Um, let me keep reading. Verse 52, the Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread that... Uh, which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of the disciples, when they heard this saying, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, doth this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Verse 63 goes back to that sovereignty. It is the Spirit that makes you alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore saith I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. There's that sovereignty at work. But then verse uh, 66 says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, will you also go away? There's that opportunity for them to choose, as some of the others did, to go away. So you got mixed up in here. Our responsibility to believe, our responsibility to come to Jesus and believe in Jesus. And then you've got at the same time Jesus saying, um, all that the Father has given me will come to me. Um, all, that, all, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And I'm not going to lose them. And so um, you, see, you see our responsibility to believe in God's election and salvation. And, and then you see that freedom to choose um, being offered to us. Now, 
I'm not about to get too deep in this, but if you want to read some deep theology, all you got to do is you type in Google, you just Google sermons on God's sovereignty and man's free will, and you can go as deep in this rabbit hole as you want to go. Um, I'm a part of a Facebook group called Molinism, who, who, and that, the reason this interests me is because they believe they have found the missing link between God's sovereignty and man's free will, and that through this group they can reconcile those two doctrines and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, these guys are talking way above my head. I don't understand it. They love it. They're intellectuals. They love going down that rabbit hole and trying to reconcile those things. I just think it's interesting to read. I, they lose me about 99% of the time. I made one comment in that group one time, and I swore I'd never make another one because they picked me apart. And I'm like, I ain't going there no more. I'm just going to read what y'all wrote. And, um, and, but it's helped me. I've learned from them, and I've grown in them. And my relationship with other pastors who don't see this thing just like I see it has helped me grow in that area too. I don't think any of us have it all figured out. I don't think all of us can fully reconcile these two doctrines. Um, I, don't think I, I don't think I can understand completely and fully the work of God. The Bible tells me that I can't. That his ways are higher than my ways. That his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And, I, and, that, and, and, and Paul said in Romans chapter 11, which is a deep chapter in and of itself, uh, all the depth, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I'm not, I, so I'm not even going to try to reconcile these things this morning. I just want you to understand this, that the Bible tells us that God is sovereign. And when, you, when we use the word sovereign, what I mean by that is that God has supreme power and authority. He is in complete, absolute control of everything. I believe that. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He, he, he can do anything and he knows everything and he is everywhere present at all times throughout all eternity. So God is sovereign. I, I, I know that the Bible teaches me um, that God is sovereign. In fact, Ezekiel, in, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel used the term sovereign over 210 times. Um, and Ezekiel gives us a, a good revelation of God and who he is, just like the book of Revelation gives us um, a revelation of Christ and who he is. And so when you talk about sovereignty, the Bible makes it clear that God is absolutely, completely, totally, perfectly in control of all things. I'm just going to give you a few verses. And believe me when I tell you, if you want to find a thousand verses on the sovereignty of God, you can find them. If you want to find a thousand verses on the free will of man, you can find them. They are, they are there in the Bible. I'm not going to give you near that number this morning. I just want to point you to a few. It's interesting to me that a pagan king who, who, who God worked miraculously in his life and humbled him, a king named Nebuchadnezzar made this statement, probably one of the most profound statements about the sovereignty of God that you'll find in the Bible. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, when Nebuchadnezzar's senses returned to him after seven years of eating grass like an ox because God humbled him, when his senses returned to him, this is what Nebuchadnezzar said. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, that is, in the eyes of God. And he, that is God, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, that's among the angels, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? God's sovereign, Nebuchadnezzar said, He will do what he wants to do when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, and we ought not to even question what he's done. And this is a man that God had just humbled and, and took him to, from being the, the leader of an empire to eating grass like an ox in the, in, in the dew of heaven. But God got his attention out there. 
And when Nebuchadnezzar's reason returned to him, he made this declaration about the sovereignty of God. Uh, Romans chapter 9, I told you Zach came to me one time when he was doing his devotions in high school and said, Daddy, you're going to have to help me out with Romans chapter 9. I said, I can't help you with that. He's like, what you mean? I said, I don't understand it myself. Now, I can send you to my friend, Brother Bill Mullison. He can explain it to you. If you want to talk about Romans chapter 8 or Romans chapter 10, I'm good with that. But Romans chapter 9, I struggle with. Um, because it talks about the sovereignty of God within the salvation of mankind. In Romans chapter 9, these are two of the harder verses, and there's some other hardens in this chapter. But Romans chapter 9, verse 18 says this about God. Therefore hath he mercy. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will, he hardeneth. He's being merciful to some, and he's hardening others. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he find fault? So if, if God's having mercy on who he wants to have mercy, and he's hardening who he wants to harden, then why is he finding fault with me? And then the question is asked, which is a rhetorical question, for who hath resisted his will? Who's resisted the will of God? And the answer to that is obviously, if you read the whole context, nobody has resisted his will. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. This is God declaring himself. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's sovereignty. That is God saying, I will do everything that I have planned my plan is sovereign. It will not fail. So God's sovereign. I mean, I could, I could give you a, a thousand other passages of Scripture that talk about God's sovereignty or, or illustrate God's sovereignty in the affairs of man. But if you only emphasize God's sovereignty, if you, if you focus too much on the sovereignty of God, it reduces us to robots. It, 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 it brings us to the place where we can't do anything of our own free will or of our own volition, um, that God has made us robotic, and we only do what he tells us to do. We only do what he orders us to do. We have no choice but to do as he wills. Now, the implications of that are profound, and this is where you can get really bogged down. And, and you can take that passage in Romans. So whoever he has mercy on, he has mercy on. Whoever he hardens, he hardens. Pharaoh is an example of one who, that God hardened his heart. So, if we only do as God wants us to do, is God the author of sin? Now, there ain't very many. There are there are very few people that will say that yes, God is the author of sin. Um, the people that I fellowship won't, would not say that. Even those who believe most strongly in the sovereignty of God, they would not. One of the reasons I struggle when you get over into this ditch of God's sovereignty is that I cannot in any way make God responsible for my sin. The implications of that are profound in the fact that so, so God in his sovereignty has chosen this group of people to go to heaven and this group of people to go to hell. Now that's double predestination. And I've got trouble. I have problems with that. I don't understand. I can't comprehend that. Can't wrap my mind around it. I don't believe that. Even though I believe God is sovereign, I struggle with this whole business of He chose this particular group to send to heaven and this particular group to send to hell. 
And again, most of the guys that I fellowship with and associate with will not say that they believe that double predestination aspect either. And then the, then the other side of that coin is this. If the Bible says that it is not God's will that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. If you overemphasize the sovereignty of God, and the Bible makes it clear that the Bible says that, that, um, that it's not God's will that any should perish, then you can fall off into that ditch where then everybody's going to be saved. A universalism that in the end everybody goes to heaven. Because it's not the will of God that any should perish, but that all come to repent. You see how, you see how when, you, when you overemphasize one doctrine over another doctrine, you wind up in a ditch somewhere. Now, I would admit to you, I don't understand all the nuances of this, but, but the implications of saying that God is only sovereign and man does not have free will, that, that, is, a, that is a deep ditch as far as I'm concerned. And so... While I don't believe there's any doubt about God's sovereignty, and I believe, I, you know, the Bible, the, the, the word elect and election is used in the Scripture regarding those people that are saved. Even the word predestination is used. Now, we, we interpret it differently, that he has predestined us to be conformed unto the likeness of his Son. But you read Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 9, and that whole business of election and predestination comes up in there. So even though I believe in God's sovereignty, and I believe in election, and I believe that God is completely in control over the destinies of man, I also believe that man has the freedom of will. And that, that, what that means is that we have the ability to choose. To obey God or to disobey God. Now, the, listen, all the way through the scripture, from the Garden of Eden to the book of Revelation, you've got example after example after example where God declared his will to people. And they walked in contradiction to that. They walked in opposition to what God's revealed will was for their life they walked against his will they walked against his command just a few verses about the free will of man and i'm going to try to pull it all together and we're going to close it down because um it just gets deeper as you dig i promise you there's a there's a two-letter word in the bible if that's the biggest little word in the bible to me because it always implies that there's a choice that there's maybe there's a promise that's been made but there's a provision that has to be met. That little if stands in the middle. If you want this promise, you have to do this. If, if, if. And, and all of those ifs are an emphasis about what, this is what God said and this is what he has called us to do. And if we do this, this is what God will do for us. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 9. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live choose i'm setting this is your I've, I've explained to you what my will is for your life i have told you what will happen if you walk with me the blessings that i pour out on you i've also told you what will happen to you if you walk contrary to my will these curses will fall upon you then he said so you've got the choice life and death blessing or cursing i'm just i'm encouraging you today to choose life Probably a passage of scripture that many of you have displayed on the wall of your home. Joshua chapter 24 verse 15. After they had gotten into the promised land. They were inside the promised land. Conquered the promised land. Everything God promised them, God gave to them. Not one thing that God 
promise failed them because they walked according to the will of God. And so Joshua said in Joshua 24, 15, If it seemed evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. He said, you can serve the gods of Egypt, you can serve the gods of the other side of the river, or, or you, you can choose whoever you want to serve. But I'm telling you, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua again presented them with a choice. In John chapter 7, verse 17, this is what Jesus said, If any man will do his will, now, he's, he's thrown this out there. If any man will do his will, he will know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. So Jesus is implying a man has a choice to make, whether or not he wants to do the will of the Father, believe the word of the Father, obey the command of the Father. And, and if he will do that, then, then he'll know the doctrine that he's walking in is of God not of man. Now, if you overemphasize man's free will, then you can minimize God's control and God's knowledge of all things. If you overemphasize man's free will, you take away some of God's sovereignty, so to speak. You minimize God's sovereignty. And now the implications of that are just as profound. Do I save myself? Absolutely not. But if I overemphasize my freedom of will, I can take glory for my salvation because it was my choice after all. So see, you can get real. You can go down this rabbit hole, and it's hard to find your way back out of it. If you overemphasize free will, is my will more powerful than God's will? Can my will override God's will? And if that's the case. Does that make me my own God, the God of my own destiny? Y'all gave me this deer in the headlight look right now. This is funny to me. I, I, if, if you don't have one, I would encourage you to get one because it's a good Bible to have. It's called a Thompson Chain Reference Bible where you can, um, these different topics will come up and there'll be a numbering system out beside it and you can go and follow that train of thought. Thompson Chain Reference Bible. It's a really, really good study tool. <laughs> but this made me laugh out loud because I was researching, looking up some verses of Scripture and under sovereignty of God, you have sovereignty of God and you have all these verses listed. And then right up under sovereignty of God, the very next heading in a Thompson Chain Reference Bible is sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. So we've got the sovereignty of God, and then we've got, if you do that, you're going to get this. The free will of man, together in Thompson's Chain Reference Bible. So, what do you believe? What do I believe? <clears throat> now, I'm going to tell you, I'm about to oversimplify this. If you want to dig deep, you go dig deep. I done dug deep. And I can tell you, I ain't no smarter after digging deep than I was before I started it. I'm just telling you, I don't fully understand it, and I can't reconcile it, but I believe both things are true. But this is the best way that I can explain what I believe about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, is that God, in his sovereignty, has given to man free will. God 
that God, in His sovereign control of this creation, has said, I'm going to let you choose. Now, I know that ain't the most profound thing you've ever heard, but that's how I've reconciled this thing in my mind and left God in control and left me the ability to choose whether I want to walk with Him or not. And if I don't walk with him, then I've chosen the consequences of not walking with him. The God in his sovereignty set man and, 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 and woman in the Garden of Eden with everything they needed and didn't put anything off limits to them except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you can't eat that. You can have everything else, but you can't eat that because in the day that you eat of that, you'll surely die. Gave him a choice. And with that choice came a consequence. And that consequence was death. And when they ate thereof, the Bible said they immediately, their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked and they went and hid themselves from God. And God's sovereignty gave them the choice. They chose wrong and they suffered the consequences of that. And ultimately, that, led to, that, led, that sin led them to death. They died immediately, I believe. They, their fellowship with God, their relationship with God was ruptured right away. And that's the reason they hid themselves from God. And they experienced a spiritual death. They, they, they began, a, 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 their, their mind became more and more depraved. And we see evidence of that all around us. And, and eventually they would die a physical death. Which then put us back in the hands of God, making us absolutely dependent on God to move for us or we would never move for God. Now this is where, I, I'm not trying to get real, real deep in this, but understand this. We are dead in sins and trespasses. We're separated from God. We are spirit. We spiritually, before you come to Christ, you have no life in you. So God has to move to us or we will never move to him. But God didn't leave Adam and Eve in that situation. He, 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 he killed a lamb to clothe them with. And then he made them this promise um, that I'm, I'm going to give you the seed of the woman. And he... And he uh, is going to be bruised on his, on his heel, but he's going to crush the serpent's head. The first prophecy, the lamb was the first symbol of what Christ would do. But the first prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I'm going to move on your behalf so that you can move back to me. God's sovereignty. And listen to me, the Bible says that God knew that was going to happen before he formed the world. That Jesus was the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. So he knew the choice that man was going to make. And he had a remedy in place for that choice. But it involved our will. Again, we made the will to sin against him. We had the will to sin against him. And we have the will again to choose the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're dependent upon the sovereignty of God to move on us before we'll move toward Him. 1 John 4, 19, we love Him because He first loved us. You didn't love God before He loved you. I didn't love God before God loved me. Jesus was sent. God extended his love toward us while I was a sinner, an enemy, separated, a child of wrath. Jesus died for me there. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. 
and ordained you that you should go forth and bring forth much fruit. So, God is sovereign. And if God, if God didn't draw us, if, if God didn't send his son for us while we were sinners, we'd never been saved. If God didn't draw us to himself, if God didn't reveal himself to us, <clears throat> the Bible makes it clear he reveals himself to mankind three ways, through his creation, through our conscience, and through his Christ. So God is always working sovereignly to draw us to himself, but he still leaves us with a choice. What are you going to do with it? Listen, I believe there was a man in the Bible by the name of Cornelius um, that was being drawn to God by, by, by creation and by his own conscience, but he didn't know anything about Jesus. He was a Gentile. And the Lord moved in Peter's life when gave him his vision about a sheep coming down from heaven with all kind of unclean animals. He said, rise and eat. And Peter said, I ain't eating that. Uh, I'm a Jew. I'm not eating that. That's unclean. And Jesus said, don't call what, don't call what I have cleansed unclean. And he told him about Cornelius, a devout man. He's doing all that he knows to do to draw near to God, uh, but he don't know the way to God is through Christ. You go to him. Peter went to him. Can, can, is that not God's sovereignty? All at work in the life of Cornelius? He knows what Cornelius is thinking. He knows what Cornelius is doing. And he says, Peter, you go and tell him the way to me is through Christ. That's why he tells us to go into all the nations and preach the name of Jesus. Because God's drawing people all over this world to himself. Listen, I hear missionaries reporting all the time that, that Islamic, Muslim people are having dreams and visions of Jesus. Um, that, that, and they don't understand where he fits in God's plan. And they're seeking out missionaries saying, tell us who Jesus is. And people of the Muslim faith, that's the sovereignty of God. Then he's giving them that choice. What are you going to do with Jesus? That freedom to choose him. So listen, here, here's one of the arguments people make sometimes when you talk about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Especially if we overemphasize free will. You're taking glory for your salvation. No, I'm not. If God had not pursued me, I never would have pursued him. If the Lord had not called me, I never would have called upon him. If the Lord had not convinced me of my sin and convinced me of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would have never professed my faith in Him. I ain't taking any glory for my salvation. God moved to me so that I could move to Him. And if He had not done that, I would have never moved towards Him. That's God's sovereignty giving me the freedom to make that choice. Now, ultimately to me, it just boils down to this. And I know... I, you can go read all the arguments against what I'm about to say, and you're free to do that. But this is what I ultimately believe, is that God wants us. We are the crown of His creation. The Bible makes it clear that God created only one thing in this creation after His own image, and that's us. And what God desires of us is a, is a loving relationship with Him. And I do not believe... That love is love unless love is a choice. Listen, you can go buy you a baby dog that you can pull a string on and it'll tell you it loves you 20,000 times a day if you want to. You can exercise your sovereignty over that doll and make you say a thousand times a day, I love you, I love you, I love you. But if you don't have a choice in that, it ain't really love. 
You're just doing what you're pre-programmed to do. And so ultimately, I believe this, love isn't love unless, God, unless it's a choice. And God's sovereign love to us compels us, convinces us to love and trust Him in return. I think that faith is ultimately the purest expression of love. We believe God loves us, so we trust Him. We put our life in His hands because we trust Him. He loves us, we know that He loves us. We love Him, so we trust Him. Now, <clears throat> does He know the choices we go make? Absolutely He does. I'm not an open theist. I don't believe God makes his choices based on our choices. I think God already knows all the choices that we're going to make. In fact, I believe he knew every sin that I would ever commit before I ever committed it. I believe he knew every failure I'd, had, I'd have after my salvation. I'm, he's not surprised by me. I'm surprised by him a lot, but he's not surprised by me. He knows me. I see him through a glass darkly, but he knows me. He chose me. And given me the opportunity to choose him. He knows the choice I'm going to make, but he chooses me. And he make, I believe this is true. He makes a sincere offer of salvation to everybody. Even though he knows the ones that will reject him. John chapter 6, verse that we just read he said i know who's going to choose me and who's not i know who's going to betray me i chose him to be an apostle even knowing that he's going to be the one that betrays me he still chooses to make a sincere offer of salvation to everybody because he's a just god he's no respecter of persons he gives everybody the opportunity, even knowing what they'll do with that opportunity. Now, I know that there are theologians and Bible scholars. I hope none of them listen to this message today, to be honest with you. Because they they, they're turning backflips over my oversimplification of these two doctrines. I'm telling you, just... Me just saying God sovereignly gave us free will makes some of their head turn around like that lady in the exorcist. But I've read all their I've read all their commentaries. I've read all the Bible verses that I know to read. And and, and my response to them would simply be it, it you've you've oversimplified this thing. My my response to them would be you've overcomplicated it. And you've pretended, like a lot of us have pretended for far too long, that we can comprehend the mind and will of God, and we can't. We just can't. And quite frankly, I'm glad we can't, because that means he's smarter than we are. And I don't want a God who's down on my level. I want a God who's transcendent, that I can't figure out. But it's just this simple to me. If you have a mind and a will to move towards God, that is all the proof that you need that God has moved towards you. That 
If you want to talk about election, if you want to talk about being chosen, if you want to talk about being predestined, listen to me. If you sitting in this room this morning have a mind to move towards God, it is because God has already moved towards you. Otherwise, you wouldn't even have that thought. You would not be convinced and you would never be converted. He already knows whether you're going to choose him or not. But he's not taking that choice out of your hands. If you come to Christ, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. <clears throat> I don't know that I've ever done this before. <laughs> You know, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and I know, I think sometimes that passage of Scripture is just blown way out of context, but it, um, it says, in the latter days, he's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And he said, the old man going to dream dreams. And the young man are going to have visions. I'm, guess I'm, in an, I'm guessing I'm in the old man category right now. <clears throat> Because most of the time when I have a bad dream, it's because I took a dose of NyQuil. Or I ate something I shouldn't have ate, and I have a bad dream. So I don't tell you about all my dreams. But I had a dream Thursday night, and I, I've been kind of pondering this message for a while. And I don't know why the Lord wakes me up at 2 o'clock in the morning, but that seems to be the hour that he can communicate with me the most clearly. But I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning from a dream. And it was a weird dream. But there was this guy building a house up on the top of the mountain. And, and I'm trying to, I'm going to boil all this down real quickly for you. He had planted the seeds that had become the trees from which he had milled the lumber to build this house up on the hill. And he had this lumber loaded on a truck. Brother Will, I thought about you when I woke up. He's a truck driver, and I thought about Will and his truck, and I'm thinking, God, you calling me to go into truck driving business with Will or what? But it, was, it, was a, it was a truck load of lumber. And, and, the, and the builder in that dream said, if you want to live with me there, then get in this truck and drive it to the top of the hill. Now, in my dream, I had all kind of objections to that. I don't know how to drive a truck. And he was like, I'll put it in gear for you. All I got to do is manage the gas. Just drive the truck, top of the hill. Build me a house, build you a house. Now, that's a crazy dream. But the owner had done everything from planting the seeds. He had the plan. He planted the seed because it was his plan to build a house. He planted the seed that grew the tree that provided the lumber and even the vehicle to transport it to the top of that mountain and this is the only condition. Drive this truck to the top of that mountain and the house that I build you'll live, you'll live with me in it. Now, I have a clue what that dream meant until the Lord woke me up. 
and this message came to my mind. And you can say, you fabricated that to fit this. I promise you, I had that dream. <laughs> and it may not make any sense to you, but it made sense to me. Jesus said the, that he's going to his father's house to prepare a place for us. That's what he said. And that he was going to come again and receive us unto ourselves. Himself, where he is, there we can be also. I believe the Father is building a home for his children. Preparing an inheritance for us. It's been his plan from the beginning. It was a seed that he planted from the beginning. It was a tree that he grew from the beginning. It was the lumber. It was his vehicle. That's all his sovereignty at work. And I want to tell you, Jesus is all those things. He's all those things. He's God's plan. He's God's seed. He hung on a tree. He's provided a way for us. To go to the Father's house. And the vehicle that takes us there is simply our faith in Him. Faith in Jesus is the gas pedal takes us home. When I get to heaven, I promise you this, I ain't going to be bragging about what I did to get there. I'm going to be bragging about his plan, about his seed, about his tree, about his vehicle. I'm going to be bragging about everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus has done. All I did is got in a truck and rode on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That don't give me any room to boast. What am I boasting about? I'm boasting about all that Jesus did. God's in control. And I believe ultimately all that means is, or I'm not, let me rephrase that, that ain't all that means is, God is in control and part of what that means is that he has given us a choice whether or not we want to live in love with him forever. You want to live in love with God forever. And I'm going to tell you what hell is. Hell is for people who have said no to God all of their life. And God gives them what they ask for. They don't want to live in love with Him. They don't want to live inside His will. They don't want to obey His commands. They don't want God in their life. And so what does God give them? What they ask for. That's the law of, that's the law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you have sown. You get what you have asked for. Because I have given you the parameter of your own free will to choose whether or not you want to live with me forever. God in his sovereignty has offered us a choice of living with him forever. And I, I got to say this and I'm done. His love for you is unquestionable. All you got to do is look at Jesus and who he is and all he's done. God's love for us is unquestionable. But our love for him, which is manifested and proven in our trust, 
He gives us the opportunity to freely reciprocate our love to him or to reject it. That's what I believe about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. They're not, they're not in competition with each other. They're working together for our salvation. But the choice ultimately belongs to us. He's chosen us in Christ. He's chosen us in Christ to be saved. And if we receive Christ by faith, then we are his chosen. We are his elect. He has predestined us to be conformed into his image. That choice is yours today. As our musicians come, Lord, I love you and I thank you for your love for me. And I know that, Lord, we've just tackled one of the more complicated paradoxes that your word presents to us. I don't profess to know your mind or your will other than your word tells me that it's not your will that any should perish but that all come to repentance. And that repentance is our choice to turn away from our sin and to turn to Jesus. That's the opportunity that we have this morning. I don't know the hearts of all these people that are here, but I believe, God, if there's one person in this room today that has been convicted of sin and convinced of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that's all the proof that they need that you are moving towards them, that you are offering them a free gift of salvation. All we have to do when a gift is presented to us is receive it. And you've told us how to receive it in your word. We receive it by faith. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus shall believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That same passage you tell us that people won't call on whom they have never heard. And they won't ever hear unless it's been preached to them. God, I've done my very best to do that this morning. Now the opportunity belongs to them. And, 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 and it goes on to say in that 17th verse of chapter 10 in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. And God, if they've heard this morning with a heart of faith and respond, your word promises that you'll save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Jesus Christ. And so I pray you do that this morning. Save the lost. Lord, help us not wrestle so much with these doctrines that we try to erase all the tension and wind up in a ditch somewhere. Help us to learn to live between them. You deserve all the glory for our salvation. I pray I never take any of that from you. You deserve all the glory for all that you've done over all of my life to bring me to Jesus and ultimately to take me to heaven. Just have your will and your way in this time of invitation. And anything and everything you do, God, it'll be you that deserves honor for it and glory for it. We'll give it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand, if you need to come, I'll be glad to meet you here and pray.